Hello everyone, and welcome back to Money Power Health. In past episodes, we've touched upon the issue of framing, the way we tell the story of what generates health, and the ways in which power and money do or do not sufficiently feature in that story. Now, this week's guest is going to talk to us about the cumulative effects of commercial actors influencing how we think about health and its story. Uh, My guest this week is Grant Ennis, the author of the book Dark PR. We had a really fascinating conversation in which I learned a lot about the cumulative effects of commercial activity on how we think about health, as well as what the implications are for how we organise and how we create more effective change. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Grant Ennis, hello and welcome to Money Power Health. Good to be here with you, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And uh, I've been digging into your book, uh, Dark PR, and I found just a wealth of information, some of which um, I've become familiar with through my work, but other uh, other examples uh, or trends or cross-industry strategies that are that are really fascinating to read about and really pull things together in a really um, important way. So thank you so much for for writing the book. Um, and I guess a, a first question I wanted to ask you was uh, how, how you came to, to think of writing the book. What prompted you to do it? Well, thanks a lot, Nathan. And good question, I think, to, to open us up for the, for the talk. Uh, I grew up in San Francisco where I think a lot of the environmental movement, if it didn't, perhaps didn't start, but um, gained a lot of ground earlier on and everybody around me was recycling and no one was advocating or fighting for political action or that's at least what it felt on my end um there was this and it it really just felt like we'd all been conned like i knew i knew the plastics industry had come up with this idea and i was having a lot of traction among friends or a lot of problem gaining traction with my friends um to organize to to try and get political action to get a, a tax on fossil fuels or um, to ban plastics, you name it, any kind of political action seemed to have been completely supplanted, supplanted or crowded out by this focus on individual consumer, consumer action. And that, over the years, trying to explain the research I was working on to people, the, the focus I had on the value or, or harm of individual action... Um, led to me discovering ways of presenting that information in a way that people would absorb it more. And I realized I got a lot more ground when I treated people not as people who were foolish or people who were down the wrong path, but people who, like me, had been conned. And so then Mm. I realized I needed to write a book to start from the very beginning on where we were with the status quo um, and then how badly we've been conned, starting from the kind of more rudimentary framings and then working more incrementally up to, um, to the more complicated stuff. And I know we're, we're going to talk about the book today, so I won't go over the whole, whole structure of it, but that's, that's the, the origin story. Frustration about recycling, I guess you could say. Wow. Fascinating. I think I'm so glad to hear um, you articulate this this concept that I've been grappling with um, along with colleagues over the last couple of years, this idea that 
beyond uh, specific health challenges or specific environmental challenges, uh, we have to deal with the the industries behind some of these challenges. But but more importantly, we have to deal with a pollution that isn't just a physical pollution. We have to deal with a pollution of of discourse and understanding um, that affects the ways we f- we think about problems and solutions, the causes, possible paths forward, um, how we think about evidence and government and what's the responsibility of whom. And I think to a greater extent than I've seen anywhere else, that is really what your book seems to, to delve into. And one of the ways in which is, it does this is through uh, framing and kind of picking apart framing and frames that help contribute to what you're talking about, this sort of sense of either uh, overly individually focused initiatives or failing to consider some of the more the structural factors and gaining traction in addressing those. Could you talk a little bit about what what framing is in your view and how that came to inform how you approached uh, the frames you talk about in the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to. And I I think the way you put it in, in your article, actually, the pun, what is it actually called? The Pollution of Health Discourse. I forget the t- specific title of the article. Um, pollution is such a wonderful word. Um, it's, it's good framing. Um, I, I think I like to think about the pollution of the information environment um, in the way that mm. I, I, I look at it in my mind, but that's just um, irrelevant for the moment. Um, I, I latched onto framing, and I think of framing really in terms of uh, um, for Clow, like Nor- Norman Fairclough, um, mm-hmm. and um, this whole uh, critical discourse analysis. That's really where I started to get into framing. And then I, I read some um, uh, George Lakoff, and I started to get more and more into framing. But when I explain framing to people, and when I give lectures on framing, usually the way I open is with, uh, we, I think we need a better name for it now, but it's called the Asia Disease Experiment. And it's, it's this experiment where it's Amos and, what's his last guy's last name? Traversky. It's a very, very famous experiment where they, they run two different framings of a disease outbreak. And they say this disease um, will save either um, 600 people or it will save um, uh, two-thirds, some other permutation that is also 600 people. And then they frame that one other way, but with the same numbers. And so in the end, you have four different possible answers, and you've only got, and each person gets two, two of those four. And they found that the way you framed what it was essentially the same information could lead to something like 25% different percent difference in poll responses just very subtle differences in the way that you frame what is essentially political information uh, leads to completely different levels of political support. And that's, that's very important because by starting with a framing of an experiment that's completely benign and unrealistic and it's just a, a, a fake thing, you can demonstrate to people that even when you're not changing the actual material environment, by changing the framing, you can change their levels of political support. And that means everything. Brexit passed by, I think, 4%, you know, um, the year before last. 
Switzerland had a, a referendum for whether or not they wanted to enter into the Paris Accords, and it won by 51.6%. So the really minute differences in framing change everything. And for people that are unaware, of, maybe I've skipped ahead a little bit too much, for people unaware of framing, the most go-to examples are uh, pro-life versus pro-choice, um, or um, uh, what's it called for employment? It's called the right to work versus, I don't know, Nason, what would the, the opposite of the right to work lobby? Um, mi a minimum wage, minimum wage. Right. Yeah. Right to work versus minimum wage. These are wonderful. I mean, I would say one side is rather de devious, but uh, wonderful <laughs> examples of framing and that really influences people's levels of political support on a given issue, which then influences po uh, politicians' acts um, and subsequently acts of legislature uh, that come about. Um, frames are all around us, and uh, good framing can really, uh, really make a big difference when it comes to global issues such as uh, the, the food environment that's been polluted, um, that's led to diabetes and all these other kinds of problems, global warming, car crashes, lung disease, um, you name it. It's really interesting the, the way you describe it when the, nar the margins are so narrow anyway, quite often in these kind of election choices or especially in, in referenda and recent referenda. And the focus is often on particular facts. And we certainly as scientists tend to focus on uh, fact-checking or, uh, you know, following a certain piece of evidence or making sure that a, that a sort of however it's defined piece of evidence is, is presented uh, in a way that the public understand and is, is accurate. Um, there's often a, a lot less of a focus on the wider framing, the framing of the problem and the framing of responsibility in often highly political ways. Um, another good example recently would be the framing around those trying to, to come to the UK um, via the channel and how they can be framed either as illegal immigrants or as refugees. And the problem can be framed as one of a failure to have a, a, an appropriate uh, legal means of seeking asylum or a problem of criminality, of smuggling gangs, right? And the framing can have a really profound effect on what the public then might think of as the appropriate solution, not just on, in terms of what evidence is, is most applicable, but also what the moral argument is, what, what, where, where moral agency lies. And so really, really fascinating, Grant. Thank you for, thank you for elaborating a little bit on, on framing and its significance. I wanted to, to delve into a little bit a few of the frames that you talk about in the book, because I think they're really interesting. And, and they're the sort of frames that are almost, it's like you're you're teasing out bits of our environment, bits that are all around us, but that we maybe don't really think of. Um, and one example is uh, this idea of complexity or of multifactorialism. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about multifactorialism, what it is, um, some examples of it in action, and what that does uh, as a framing. Oh, thanks a lot, Nathan. Um... I, I love to talk about complexity and multifactorialism. So think, really grateful for the opportunity. I think the, one of your colleagues wrote a great piece, um, who I'm blanking the name, 
nothing can be done until everything is done. Was it Mark Pettigrew. Or- yeah, Mar- Mark Pettigrew. Yeah, I was a co-author on that. Yeah, yeah Mark oh, Pettigrew. Led you us on you that. wrote that. Sorry. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> no, no, he, he led us on it for sure. <laughs> the, but I and you, you followed in a, a, a scholarly tradition that I believe started with Sylvia Nobel Tesh in exploring uh, multifactorialism. Her, her writing in the early 80s and her thesis. And the, what you did and what, what Mark and yourself and your, your team did that I felt like needed a bit of a change was you combined what I saw as two things. There is this thing where fra- people doing framing, PR professionals say things are complex. They're confusing. They're convoluted. They're integrated. They're circular. Um, they're systemic as opposed to structural. And, but then there's this other element of multifactorialism that, that needs to be teased out there, where it's when we say the solution to this or the cause of this is a bunch of things. Mm. That the, the, the cause of this is X, Y, and Z, and the solution is X, Y, and Z, that we need a toolbox, that, we, that nothing can work unless everything is there. It's, it's thus your title. I think we need to look more in depth on that. I'm working for a piece now for, for Samantha Thomas because one thing, and I show this in my book a little bit, one thing I uncovered in the tobacco archives was this is something that was actually promoted by the tobacco industry in the 70s in the Panzer Report, where the Panzer Report actually says, you know, our current model of denying the effects of, cancer, of tobacco on cancer is not going to hold up forever. We need to try something new. How about this thing, multifactorialism? And then mm. you see them funding you know, studies and they're funding academia, as we all know now. Um, that I feel like, I mean, I haven't dug into it yet, but I feel like that really did leach into funding for nutrition research, which then led to this very famous combination that you see in nutrition research of all, all health problems are a combination of genetics, lifestyle, diet, uh, etc. Which, and this ideologically doesn't really help us to get anywhere. We, it, it really, it, it diffuses us. If you think back to, again, the Asian disease experiment, what, what you're doing there is you're dividing political will. You know, you're, you're dividing voters, you're dividing, dividing policy attention, you're diluting any kind of support for the larger big ticket items that actually do make a dent in whatever problem you're trying to solve. So if you're one thing that I like to talk about a lot is subsidies, because I find them just so atrocious. If you're going to um, look at global warming and you're going to say we need carbon capture storage, we need more efficiency, we need individuals to work on their carbon footprints, all these things that are really proven to not have make any dent at all. And then we also should probably look at subsidies and cut subsidies a little bit. You're creating this laundry list. It's essentially a gish gallop, you know, a gish gallop in rhetorical strategy for, for negotiation. You just throw so many things at your negotiation op- opponent that they can't, they can't latch on to any one. Mm. The Russell Brand strategy, you could probably recall it these, <laughs> these days. Um, I mean, in, and in public health, you see it all the time. For nutrition, you see, you know, we need a combination of approaches. And then you see this list of things that just very clearly don't work. Um, and you don't see the, the things that we know that no do work. Soda taxes, for example. Bans on um, selling soda and unhealthy foods in schools. 
These policies work. They change the material environment of food around us. But you don't end up getting these things because we're very distracted by these other things that don't work, which we've included in these long toolboxes when we use this multifactorial ideology. Um, it's treated as an axiom. You know, the best solution is a, a com com combination of approaches. But that's really, that maybe that's the case, but you could prove that with empirical data. But you say it now without any evidence of it being the case. It's just it's accepted instantly. I think that's right. I mean, it, a couple of things um, that I reflect on when I, I hear you talk about this. One is that there's a very obvious uh, li legal liability uh, defense embedded in that sort of multifactorial argument, right? Which is this idea that, uh, and again, it goes back to tobacco industry documents, that one of the reasons for engaging in disinformation more generally and framing more generally is a way of avoiding legal liability, a way of avoiding negative PR. And one way to do that is to focus on the fact that this problem that you're being associated with is actually caused by loads of things. It's not just you, it's very complex. And the other reflection is that it also opens the door to partnership. You know, if you say this is a very complex problem, it requires lots of different solutions. It requires input from everyone. Everyone needs to be at the table. Everyone needs to be part of solving this. That also opens the door to, to partnership, to engagement in, in regulation and policy by industry stakeholders, right? Um, and uh, I'll put a video in the uh, show notes that one of my students found recently. It's like a one-minute video from Coca-Cola where they sort of talk about the problem of obesity. And it's so fascinating the language they use. You know, it's everyone's problem. We're all to blame. Mm. And we're all part of the solution, you know? Um, and as they're saying that, they're showing video of like us throwing bottles away in the trash, us exercising. <laughs> you know, they're definitely not uh, in that montage showing lawmakers approving, uh, you know, soda tax legislation. <laughs> That's yeah. definitely not there, but they are there, you know, and we are a part of that. Um, I, I, if you don't mind, Grant, one thing I did as I was reading your book and planning for this conversation is I just pulled a few of these arguments from some of our research and I wanted to read a couple to you um, because some somewhere in your book and somewhere not. I just wanted to maybe get your thoughts. So uh, this one is from the UK uh, Food and Drink Federation. We believe obesity is a complex problem which cannot be reduced to the demonization of one ingredient. There is no simple answer to the complex problems of obesity. So that's food and drink, right? Then I'll read one from ExxonMobil. Earth's climate is affected by many complex variables, such as sunlight, clouds, rain, wind, ice, storms, lightning, volcanoes, comets, magnetic fields, and living organisms, including humans. Throughout history, climate has fluctuated between periods of cooling and periods of warming. That was uh, ExxonMobil in 1998. Uh. <laughs> so <laughs> that's incredible, isn't it? Right? Like to some degree, there's probably vague elements of truth in that, but the multifactorialism is so dense that, you know, living organisms, including humans, is sort of thrown in as a, as a you know, as almost like an aside. I saw, I saw a piece, I think it was in CNN yesterday, that said that um, moose... How do you say, what's the plural of moose? Is it also just moose, mooses? 
mooses are a large driver of, of global warming in Canada, apparently. And I'm just waiting for it to be on, um, you know, like Shell Oil's multifactorialism li list next year. It'll be lightning, humans, and mooses. <laughs> It is, it is, it is pretty incredible. I mean, even one thing that really jumped out to me is we've been doing some research on the firearm industry more recently. And our last guest, um, one of our last guests was uh, John Lowy from, who was formerly at Brady, but is now uh, working in a new charity uh, against a global, uh, called Global Action on Gun Violence. And um, the NRA engage in exactly the same arguments. So, so we find a document from 1999 where the NRA say, is there a cause and effect relationship between firearms and suicide? Nearly everything gets blamed for suicide. Love, hate, religion, pain, boredom, fear, shame, guilt, alcoholism, drug addiction, family dissolution, loss of a job, a new job, the news, media, music, the time of year, terminal illness, old age, even the weather. John Lloyd, excellent, excellent episode. Um, sounds like a really, really sharp guy. Um, one thing that he said really struck me was he was saying that, uh, I mean, this is one thing, uh, that, uh, comes up a lot is people say that their, their industry is unique. And I want to, I want to tell you, John, at least in this one example, firearms industry was not unique. And it was, he was saying that, um, uh, the firearms industry says that guns are good for you in the sense they'll protect your, your from kids. But he said, I don't think the tobacco industry uh, ever did that. Um, and let me tell you, John, and I, I hope we get to meet one day. You sound like a wonderful person The almost every industry does that. I call, I mean, I mean, my book, I call it post denialism, but the tobacco industry definitely said cigarettes, not that it would cure your lung cancer, but that it was good for your throat. The doctors say you should smoke it. Um, that it'll make you feel better. Yeah. Help you lose weight. It, it was the, what was it? Um, Torches of Freedom for the Feminist Movement. Um, tobacco is great, according to the tobacco industry. Uh, yeah, the, the, we need, to, and I, I only say, I only highlight this not to, not to poke fun too much, but I think we really need to think more about that point. We are not operating in silos. Um, I mean, we are, and we shouldn't be, because these industry PR professionals definitely are not. They're taking the same tactics from tobacco, they're applying them to firearms, to sugar, uh, to you name it. Um, and we, we in the public health community, the environmental community, the activist community, we need to see this a lot more um, for what it is. Uh, and we need to stop seeing ourselves in silos and recognize these discursive techniques are exactly the same with slight repackaging. Yeah, I mean, no, I agree. And um, I can understand what John was getting at in the sense that there is a, that, that repackaging in, in firearms, it, it goes extremely deep. But, but actually, when you think about it, you know, it goes, it goes deep to, to the functioning of democracy, the protection of freedom, this kind of thing. But in a way, a lot of other products adopt that mantle, you know, whether it's the sort of Mar Marlboro Cowboy or, you know, whether it's friendship and Coca-Cola and taste the feeling and all these kind of things, right? Like they really do clothe themselves in, in some very, very deep aspects of uh, the human experience, mm. even though they might just be essentially uh, sugared water or a firearm. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a, it's really a, a point worth making that while we in research or in advocacy are often in silos, hopefully less uh, to, to lesser degrees, 
these third-party organizations that are advising these companies are not. The legal firms, the PR firms, the advertising firms, uh, the consult management consultancies, you know, they're working across all these industries. So it's a good thing to remember. Another aspect of the book I really wanted to touch on that sort of relates to this is the relationship between structure, structural solutions and framing and individual solution and framing, what the implications of that are. And I thought you had a really interesting critical take on focusing on the acts of individuals versus focusing on the need for structural changes. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, so structural structural solutions, and I should quickly distinguish between systemic solutions, which I kind of critiqued earlier when I was talking about multifactorialism and complexity. Systemic solutions, oftentimes people mean structural solutions. The problem with the term, the framing systemic solutions, which um, Nate Kendall Taylor at the Frameworks Institute makes a great point about, is that systemic solutions are often considered to mean confusing, unintelligible, complicated, <clears throat> whereas structural is very clearly for what it is. It's, it's the material. It's the, the real and the tangible around us. Price, um, the, the accessibility of a thing around us, um, the time that it's, it's uh, scheduled for, the, the real actual structural reality that we can uh, interact with as human beings. When we focus on the individual, we're really then um, focusing on voluntary acts. And we actually get into the whole liberal versus material discussion. When, we, when, you, when you focus on the individual, you know, from a framing perspective, you're, you're, when you elicit choice, it doesn't really matter if you're talking about better choices or if you just touch on the concept of choice and individual action a little bit. As soon as the human mind hears choice, hears individual action, hears responsibility, they stop thinking from a tr structural lens. They stop thinking politically. They stop thinking materially. And when you look at uh, research that's been done in my book, I go through um, women's rights. I go through uh, car crashes. I look, I look at uh, support for global warming policy, support for nutrition policy. In all of these cases, when you expose human beings to individual-focused messaging, they become less supportive for political action afterwards. And it's, it's terrifying. I mean, it, and, it, and that's, that's part of why I'm, I really think multifactorialism is so pro pro important is because we're so tempted to say we need to do both. But as soon as you do both, your, your support and your political will for structural solutions basically goes out the window. I mean, as you said earlier, we're really talking about very narrow margins, 4% for Brexit, 1.6% for Paris Accords and uh, Switzerland. Um, you don't need a whole lot of, uh, of people to be duped by this kind of stuff. Um, and it's really structural changes that have led to all of the, the bounty that we have today for the few that that have bountiful lives today. I mean, we have a, live in an incredibly unequal world, but any successes that we do can take claim to, especially in the public health community, come from the structural changes, provision of clean water, um, provision of in, an increased amount of calories per day, um, cleaner air, uh, very, very basic, basic things have led to most 
increases in human lifespan. It's really interesting, especially when one thinks of the cumulative effects of an emphasis on the kind of individualism or personal responsibility framing across lots of different uh, industry sectors and amplified, um, you know, across lots of different channels, it, it becomes, there's potentially a very powerful cumulative effect on this that you can only really think about when you look uh, across cross-sector, cross-sectorally or across industries. Uh, and e even though each of, you know, each of the companies, each of the trade organizations, e each of the sectors involved in this are doing it for their own strategic uh, profit-driven reasons, there are these wider cumulative effects that, that carry across uh, the whole of society. And as you say in the book, once personal responsibility gets into a conversation, it very easily crowds out thinking about collective uh, solutions. And that isn't just when it comes to, um, I suppose, identifying individual problems that need addressed, policy problems that need addressed, but it also applies to, uh, to solutions, to movements. And I wanted to sort of dig in a little bit to your concept, or I think it was a friend's concept, of Grant's vegetarian. The idea that there are more important things than just what we as individuals do. Um, because I thought it was really fascinating and it's something I've been, I've been pondering over. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Nathan. Yeah, my friend Will Dable coined that. He was the former um, CEO of Citizen Climate Lobby in Australia. It's a... Uh, it goes off of something you touch on in your book, or one of, one of your, your writers touches on, called the hypocrite trap. Um, it's this idea, uh, I'm, I'm countering with this idea of Grant's vegetarianism, the idea that we always need to be congruent. I, I'm, I noticed something that happens with human behavior, and it'd be great to hear from uh, some psychologists or people that are mental health specialists and what they think about all this. But what I find is that people uh, who try to be coherent um, in times that are, are, are where things are changing around them, uh, end up shifting their values rather than their behaviors in order to, to have everything be congruent. So my, my appeal is that, we, especially for political action and politically important things, that we, we really need to decouple and not focus on our individual actions, even if we might find ourselves to be a hypocrite. Um, I guess in that sense that the hypocrite's trap's solution is Grant's vegetarian. Uh, you, you, and, and the idea, sorry, I should explain. The idea of Grant's vegetarian is somebody who eats meat, um, who eats animal products, but then organizes and works to fight for policy that would end subsidies for meat, perhaps, perhaps ban some certain kinds of meat, perhaps ban certain kinds of animal products. But I, but I think it's important to, to recognize that the more we try and be coherent all the time, the, where, the more we're just depoliticizing everything for ourselves. Um, Arunduti Roy has a great saying, that something to the effect of like, um, requiring the people to act ethically all the time is a great way of ensuring that nobody's political ever. You're just, you're just removing all of these activists from the... Uh, from from the world by requiring people to be perfect. Um, Sammy Grover wrote a book, um, yeah, cl being a climate hypocrite. Why he is a hype climate hypocrite. It's fantastic, fantastic. We need more people like that. 
um, the hypocrite's trap is a really big thing. No, it's it's super interesting, and, and um, it's uh, I think it's it's something that has implications, and I think is worthy of discussion far beyond just um, organizing in relation to corporate power or in relation to a specific harmful uh, product industry. It's it's this idea of um, having this wider goal and understanding that there are structural solutions that will ultimately ultimately advance this goal in really significant ways and that those structural solutions require quite a broad base of support, but then simultaneously kind of eroding that support through a sort of... um, a process of atomization and exclusion amongst ourselves where we're almost saying, well, you aren't uh, congruent enough or you aren't, um, uh, you aren't living according to principle X um, in my view, or you're not quite as, as pure in adhering to that principle as, as, as person Y is. And you're almost um, diluting support for that wider structural thing. And while I, I guess, um, while seeking to advance it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's, the, it's like the facade of advancing that cause at the cost of not actually advancing anything at all. Yeah, and I think, so Loretta Ross is um, an activist and public intellectual in the US, and she has an amazing uh, personal history, um, suffered incredibly, including, including through um, commercial malpractice, um, and she was involved in, in lawsuits uh, re- related to that, it was some kind of birth control method that was quite uh, controversial, and she ended up being harmed quite a lot by it. And, and she was able to argue in court that um, this had a kind of a racial element, the way in which it was marketed, and then the ways in which damages were opposed, and there was this kind of uh, culture of, of repression and silence around it. And she went on to do amazing work, overcoming huge personal hardships, including abuse at the hands of family members when she was young, to to do a huge amount of work on reproductive rights in the US. And she's sort of a very noted public intellectual and professor in the field of reproductive rights. But one of the things that she's shifted to in recent years is um, this notion of, of call-out culture, in her view, versus a calling-in culture. And she sort of argues that for large-scale change, for structural changes, for movements, to, to, for example, towards um, you know, anti-racism, towards deconstructing structural racism in the US, that an aspect, sort of a, a calling out mentality where we're calling out um, uh, infractions of others in, in our own movement and sort of continually excluding people from our movement is counterproductive to the ultimate goal. And she argues that uh, you know, in the same way nonviolence was once such a core part of uh, the civil rights movement, she argues that sort of this kind of sense of, this genuine sense of inclusivity of calling people in to join in this kind of wider advocacy for structural change is more important than calling individuals out for perceived differences in in how they approach certain aspects. And she makes this very powerful argument, which is, you know, if I can... If, considering my personal history, if I can work with recovering white supremacists or if I can work with uh, recovering um, perpetrators of domestic violence, surely you can work with people who are actually ideologically quite similar to you in a lot of ways, but diverge in relatively minor ways. 
for the purpose of a of a common goal. I, I completely agree. I, and I, I think the we we need to be able to find these kinds of commonalities. Like I need to be picking up the phone and calling uh, John Louis, and uh, and finding a way to be working together. Not necessarily to create a similar shared platform, but to be exchanging notes better. I think I think the one place where this becomes tricky. I mean, I, mean, I should say that that point cannot be overstated enough. We we all need to be coming together. But one one point where this becomes tricky is with anti-statists and anti-statism. Because everything that we're doing in public health and fighting for global warming requires the acknowledgement that corporations have basically captured our states and are are rigging our our material environments in ways that are killing our planet and harming our health. And there's a lot of different varieties of people that can work and we can rally around to, to get that changed. But when you have anti-statists in the mix, anarchists and libertarians, you, you face this problem of rather than um, adjusting the state to fight corporate power, uh, you, you end up with this challenge of like, no, we just don't need a state at all. Uh, and that's, that's why I, I really I don't know how to respond to sometimes we get calls for um, coming together with with groups that are really just not ideologically it's not that they're ideologically unaligned with our own but our goals are just not shared we don't have the same goals and i i think that's where this problem of multi-stakeholderism and partnership really comes about where people say oh but we need to be working with corporations because you know they're they're um we all need to be coming together. We all need to be working together, which as as Roberta Ross says, and what you're saying is totally true. As long as our goals are the same, as long as we're actually working in the same direction and our, the differences are thematic, differences of history, um, perhaps serious uh, differences of history. Um, but if our goals are the same, we can work together. But that does not mean we should be working with people with serious conflicts of interest towards actually achieving our goals, such as corporations, um, outwardly or even um, not outwardly, anti-status groups. Um, and I, I think one of the largest problems we have there is the, the commonness of anti-statism today. Uh, modern, especially I would, I, would, I would say leftist discourse, is outwardly anti-status. And I think that's partially a legacy towards the desire to dismantle the um, military industrial complex uh, and that whole movement that was I mean, very well intentioned from the 80s and 90s when we were facing uh, global nuclear destruction um, that made a lot more sense then. But, but for what we're facing now, I, I think we've got to reflect on how anti-statism uh, among the left or among whoever is actually quite a toxic narrative to achieving the things that we want to achieve. What you're saying is uh, when it comes to one's personal conduct, you know, and variations in one's personal behavior, like Grant's vegetarian, for example, it is counterproductive to engage in that kind of calling out. If you share a common goal and and wider common values, it's counterproductive to engage in atomization and to calling out within those kind of movements, Um, even though it might... Uh, you know, it might benefit in a sort of either self-promotional way or even in a, 
in a you know a purity of 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 thought and motive way it it doesn't advance the overall mission but where there are genuine either conflicts of interest or even just ideological foundational disagreements about the role of the state then that's something very different and it's absolutely not a case that we that we have to choose either multi-stakeholderism that includes everyone or uh, a sort of a very much an atomization of uh, well, of dissent, as you put it, you know, uh, f- framing citizen action in in very kind of individualized ways and focusing on what individuals, uh, what an individual does in terms of what they buy, what they vote, what they vote for. Yeah, and thank thank you for helping me to segue into that and atomization, as I call it in the book, but other people have used the term as well. I use it in reference to three different kinds of atomization. Uh, that I call uh, electoralism, uh, a term I learned from um, a Stanford researcher named Lynn. But but it's this idea that just voting is enough for us to really have a democracy, for us to really have a a healthy society. But but democracy is much more than just voting. It's not enough to, to vote. You need to have a healthy civil society. You need to have the press. You need to have some some level of devolution of government into different kinds of bodies, not necessarily full federalism. And then mobilizationism is the second form of atomization I'm referring to, where the idea that civic action is just protesting. It's just going out in the streets. And the problem with this is you lose the organizing. I went on uh, and I looked at pictures of protests from 100 years ago, and you used to see pictures of banners that said the names of people's groups. You have all these different kinds of groups and people would go to a protest that they themselves had organized with their group, representing their group and representing that their group is making a demand upon the state for some kind of change. And now what you have is these large, spontaneous events that happen and then they go away and it's over. And that's, I think that's really why we're not seeing the same kinds of um, large-scale change that we saw in the past because of this um, mobilization, mo- mobilizationism. Zainab Tufkaji has written quite a lot about this. Uh, um, and then the third, the third is uh, consumerism or consumer investorism. Um, people think that divestment works, impact investment, uh, boycotts, boycotts, these things that would uh, where you're saying. If enough people uh, buy differently, either buying more or buying less or investing more or investing less, we will somehow uh, get corporations to change their actions is a fully depoliticized way of looking at reality and looking at dissent. You've taken the state away completely. It's just um, we might as well live in feudal- feudalism if that's our theory of change. Uh, and, and these three forms of atomization, each of them, uh, breaks up organized civic engagement into the most basic unit possible. The, the individual uh, voter, individual person in a crowd, in a protest, the individual person investing, not investing, buying more, buying less. Um, and all of this stuff, I was able to find advertising from large corporations promoting this kind of stuff. I mean, you have uh, Google, who is spending probably at least hundreds of millions of dollars on union busting by this point. I mean, I'm just throwing that number out there, but they're so large, they must be spending enormous amounts of money. On union busting, they've been spending so much money on union busting. I don't know if they still do, but they've given their employees off the day off to protest on Labor Day. 
So they give their employees a day off to protest on Labor Day as individuals atomized through mobilizationism, while with the other hand, they're funding union busting efforts. Well, no, I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation, Grant. I mean, I, I feel like I've learned a lot and I think it's something worth a conversation that, that we need to have uh, a lot more often that kind of moves from what research in the social and commercial determinants of health often does, which is focus on the measurable, the proximal, and even think about, uh, you know, data and evidence related to individual commercial actors or products and their harms and moving up to, you know, things like impacts on framing and discourse and understanding and beyond that, uh, the shape of political structures. And I think that's, that's, um, that's a really important core argument to make. And I think that you make it um, very well. Uh, so yeah, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I wanted to end by asking you a question uh, for more early career folks who are just starting out. And in your case, I think I'm just struck by the level of uh, research, the breadth, the ambition of a book like this. What advice do you have, having been through this process and written this book, for people who may have similar ideas, but don't have the confidence to get them out there in the world, who have never done something like this. Just having done this now and seeing your book out in the world, um, what advice would you give? It's uh, a great question. I, hadn't, I haven't had enough time to think and reflect on that. I think uh, you're going to want to give up uh, a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to want to give up a lot. Uh, writing a book is a really long-term thing to do, and you're going to write a lot of awful, awful pages. Um, so I think the faster you can detach yourself and be incongruent with your identity being what you've put on paper, the better. Um, become very comfortable very quickly writing bad content and just get it all onto paper and then keep going. And then I, I couldn't have done it without um, a lot of excellent friends putting up with me, like volunteering them to read drafts uh, for me. Uh, it really it made everything possible. Because if you don't get people's ideas um, on your ideas, you're, you're just operating in your own silo. But I was very lucky to have a, a lot of friends to help me. Um, and then when I think, I think when I became more ready, I did hire a writing coach to take me the, the, the rest of the way and to, to really bring it all together. And then I, and then, um, it just got harder. <laughs> it got harder and you have to keep remembering to not give up. I'm very, I'm very glad to have, uh, pushed through that wonderful experience really helps you to shape your own thinking. And so you'd recommend it. Yeah, I'd recommend anybody write a book. Nobody needs to ever read it, perhaps, but uh, I think it's a great it's a great experience. I mean, you, what do you think? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, I didn't engage in the kind of exercise you engaged in, in the sense that I was just co-editing a book uh, with wonderful colleagues I worked with for the last couple of years, and a lot of the contributors were sort of people that I um, had geeked out over their work or had come across their work. So it was it was a slightly different exercise. But certainly seeing a book out there and its impact, um, seeing how it changes, some conversations, the the unexpected people who contact you after that, um, I think it just reminds you of the privilege that you have of having the time, the space and the platform to do something like that. And mm. I think that's a privilege that comes with 
enormous responsibility. And I think too often we either don't realize that we have that privilege or we don't realize that that comes with responsibility. And uh, the responsibility is to bear witness to to these kind of forces, in my view. That's one of those responsibilities. So it's been fantastic to to hear how you've gone about it. And I look forward to seeing the book out in the world, seeing how it continues to to generate conversations and carry forward thinking and action on this issue. Grant, thanks so much for joining us on Money Power Health. Uh, thank you so much, Nathan. Well, that's it for another episode of Money Power Health. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to bringing more to you in due course. Uh, I'll leave a link to Grant's book in the show notes, along with a couple of other sources, if you want to uh, pursue these issues further. Huge thanks to Grant for joining me today. I'll let Charlie play us out. I look forward to seeing you in a future episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a rating. It helps other people find it. The music in this podcast was by Daniel Manny. You can find more information about his music in the show notes. This announcement was read by the very talented Charlie Manny.